This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It has been quite a while since Hawaiian history made an appearance on our podcast. Back in 2010, Katie and Sarah covered uh, the long arc of Hawaii's history from its unification under Kamehameha the Great, which was completed in 1810, to the overthrow of its last monarch, Liliuokalani, which was only 83 years later. And that was at the hands of American business interests with the support of United States troops. Today's episode is connected to that history, but those two shows from the archive, while totally were, are worth listening to, uh, aren't really required listening to understand what we're talking about today. Sometime, probably in the late 18th or early 19th century, leprosy, which is now known as Hansen's disease, was introduced to Hawaii. And as this disease was spreading through a population that had no resistance to it, businessmen, especially from the United States, were having an increasing influence on the Hawaiian government. This influence had a direct effect on how Hawaii approached the disease and its spread. We'll start by setting the stage with some information about Hansen's disease. Named for Norwegian scientist and physician Gerhard Heinrich Armauer Hansen, who identified its cause, Hansen's disease is a bacterial infection. Today, it's easily treatable with antibiotics, although treatment usually takes a lot longer than a course of antibiotics for, say, a strep throat. Often, Hansen's disease is successfully cured after antibiotic treatment that lasts one to three years, and it stops being contagious after the first few doses. And it's not highly contagious even without treatment. For example, prior to the development of antibiotic treatments, only about 5% of spouses living with patients contracted the disease. In parts of the world where diagnosis and treatment are readily available, uh, Hansen's disease presents itself mostly as a relatively minor skin condition, albeit one that takes a really long time for antibiotics to completely cure. But in places where people don't have easy access to antibiotics and knowledgeable doctors to prescribe them, Hansen's, Hansen's disease can become much more complicated, damaging, disabling, and disfiguring. As it progresses, Hansen's disease can cause skin growths, blindness, ulcers on the hands and feet, and softening of the body's cartilage. As the nerves become damaged, people lose their sense of touch and can become injured without realizing it. A lot of the perception that leprosy causes people's fingers or toes to fall off is really complications from injuries, uh, because they did not realize that they were touching something dangerous. Hansen's disease progresses very, very slowly, though, so it can take years or even decades for it to reach the point where people begin to experience its most dramatic and damaging effects. Somewhat ironically, it's actually easy for Hansen's disease to be overlooked or misdiagnosed in wealthy nations with good health care systems. This is mostly because it's rare enough that physicians in a lot of the world don't ever see it in their daily practice. So when somebody shows up with this like sore that feels kind of numb, they misdiagnose it as other uh, more innocuous things. As was the case with scarlet fever, tuberculosis, and many of history's other most feared but now treatable diseases, before the discovery of antibiotics, leprosy was regarded much, much differently. Before Dr. Hansen discovered that it was caused by bacteria in 1873, 
People thought leprosy was caused by everything from sinful behavior to curses. People with the disease were considered unclean. And, of course, people recognized that it was contagious. We're not going to get into all of the various things that humanity tried while looking for a cure to Hansen's disease. But if you're interested, the podcast Sawbones has an episode on it that we'll link to in the show notes. However, that combination of a contagious disease with an unknown cause, no effective treatment and terrifying effects when left untreated meant that for centuries, a lot of societies around the world treated leprosy through lifelong quarantine of anyone who was believed to be infected. This was particularly true in Western societies, in part because beginning in the medieval period, people started to interpret biblical instructions to shun and separate people with a skin condition as being in reference to leprosy. The root of this was a Hebrew word that really encompassed multiple conditions, including things that were pretty benign even at the time, like vitiligo. Often the resulting quarantine zones, which came to be called leper colony, often the resulting quarantine zones, which came to be called leper colonies or leprosaria, were basically places where people were sent to die out of the sight of the rest of society. There are actually colonies still in existence today, and because of the deep stigma that still exists about Hansen disease in some Hansen's disease in some parts of the world. Some of the people living in them have been completely cured, but have not been allowed to return to society. Hansen's disease was first diagnosed in Hawaii in 1848, while Hawaii was still a constitutional monarchy. And for nearly 20 years after that first diagnosis, Hawaii's approach to patients was completely different from in Europe and North America. A central part of Hawaiian culture is the idea of ohana, which is a person's immediate and extended family, including people related by marriage and adoption. Also important is the idea of the place where a person was born. So for years, when a person was diagnosed with leprosy, their family pulled together to take care of them at home, surrounded by their ohana and in the place where they were born. The idea that you should be disgusted by leprosy was so ingrained in Western culture that the fact that Hawaiians were not disgusted became cause to stigmatize Hawaiians as a whole. According to Western thinking at the time, the only normal response to leprosy was disgust, and the fact that they weren't repulsed meant that native Hawaiians must be less than civilized. In the decades after the first diagnosis of leprosy in Hawaii, white business interests, particularly American business interests, had a bigger and bigger influence on the Hawaiian government. This influence started decades before the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown. White men established Hawaii's first board of health. And in 1865, under pressure from the board of health, the king and the legislative assembly passed an act to prevent the spread of leprosy. This act authorized the government to purchase land to be used as a leprosarium, along with the creation of a hospital. It authorized the Board of Health to arrest and confine anyone with leprosy. It basically criminalized leprosy and sentenced anybody who was deemed to be incurable to confinement or life. On the island of Molokai, a portion of the peninsula of Kalaupapa, which at the time was better known by the name Makainaluna, was acquired for the leprosarium. Overwhelmingly, the people who were sentenced to live there under the act were native Hawaiians, That was 97% of the people exiled within the first 20 years after the act was passed. And this exile was particularly harsh punishment for the people who were sent away. Being sent to the leprosarium cut off a person from their ohana and from their place of birth. 
for a little while, patients were allowed to be uh, accompanied by a kokua or a helper. And that was often a person's spouse or family member. And that was their only tie to their ohana after being exiled. Eventually, though, this allowance was rescinded. So people were sent away by themselves. Being separated from a person's family in place of birth did not stop once a person was at Kalaupapa. People exiled to the peninsula met, married, and had children there, as did spouses who were exiled there together. These children were removed from their families and placed in adoptive homes, usually on other islands entirely, and they were often not told who or where their birth parents were. In the words of a 1913 public health report, quote, the children that are born to these unions are at once removed to clean surroundings and are cared for by the territory until they become self-supporting. The rest of that report, by the way, is all about how generous the Hawaiian government had been to give people this well-appointed isolation in an island paradise, decrying the notion that it was a prison, while also blithely talking about how anyone who escaped from it would be apprehended by police and returned. So the idea that you would just cut somebody off from their home and their family and send them away to be quarantined is completely antithetical to Hawaiian culture's ideals and values. In fact, the exile was so disruptive and traumatic that the literal meaning of one of the terms for leprosy in Hawaiian is the separating sickness. Another term also translates to Chinese sickness from the belief that it was introduced by Chinese immigrants. In addition to the fact that this punishment for having leprosy was particularly harsh in light of Hawaiian culture, there was also no real medical care available in the colony from 1865 to 1873. And the care available from 1873 until the 1880s was pretty minimal. In 1893, one family in particular violently resisted the effort to remove them to Molokai. We'll talk about that after we first pause for a brief word from one of our sponsors. As we mentioned at the top of the show, with the help of the United States military, white businessmen overthrew the native Hawaiian monarchy in 1893. And one of the acts of Hawaii's new provisional government was to step up the enforcement of the previous 1865 act to prevent the spread of leprosy. A small community had been living in Kalalau Valley, Kauai, uh, including several people with leprosy. And it had become sort of an unofficial leprosarium, populated by patients and their families. The government knew they were there, but they hadn't done much to force them to move before 1893. However, Attorney General and President of the Board of Health, William Owen Smith, issued orders for the people of the Kalalau Valley to be moved to Kalaupapa, on June 24th, 1893, Sheriff Lewis H. Stolza was to lead the operation. First, the sheriff visited Kalalau and tried to persuade the people living there to move to Kalaupapa, where, in the words of the Hawaiian Gazette, on July 4th, 1893, quote, they would be properly looked after by the government. Several of the people who were living there did agree to go, but a couple of them refused. One of them was a man known as Ko'olau, whose full name was Paniolo Kaluai Oko'olau. Health authorities had learned that Ko'olau had contracted leprosy the year prior and had told him that he would be relocated to Kalaupapa. At that point, he moved to Kalalau with his wife and son, who also had leprosy, and said that he would kill anyone who tried to separate him from his family. Since the sheriff had gotten all but two patients to agree to be removed to Kalaupapa, he left, intending to return later to convince the last holdouts. 
Once he left, though, Ko'olau started trying to convince the rest of the colony that they should stay where they were. One reason. He had previously been told that his wife, Pi'ilani, would accompany him as Kokua, but a deputy had informed him that this would in fact no longer be the case. Gradually, Ko'olau convinced many of the residents of Kalalau to stay. When the sheriff returned with a constable a couple of days later, he was surprised to find that most of the residents were no longer willing to come with him. He temporarily deputized some of some of Kalalau's healthy residents to serve as guides once he returned with reinforcements to try to remove the entire community. While he was away, Ko'olau and several others began planning to resist the sheriff. And when the sheriff came back, violence followed. Historical accounts differ significantly on what happened and how this played out. Uh, one newspaper reports that another patient deliberately lured the sheriff to where Ko'olau was hiding in order to kill him. And another reports that the sheriff was about to kill another patient when Ko'olau fired his gun in an effort to protect that man. Pi'ilani's own account is that Ko'olau had heard that the sheriff was under orders to kill him if he resisted, and so he was defending himself. Whatever the details, the result was that Ko'olau shot and killed Sheriff Stolza. The government responded by implementing martial law and mustering a force of about 35 armed men to force the relocation out of the makeshift leprosarium. Once it became clear how outnumbered and outgunned they were, Ko'olau advised the other residents of Kalalau to cooperate. But for his own part, he, his wife, and their son fled. Law enforcement tried to track them down for days, including firing a cannon at caves where they were hiding. And at one point, Ko'olau seems to have killed at least two other deputies in self-defense. Ko'olau and his family lived in remote and inaccessible parts of Kalalau for years, sometimes getting help from other Hawaiians in the area. Eventually, their son died, and Ko'olau died of his disease as well. After both of their deaths, Pi'ilani left the valley in 1897, and she composed a lengthy poem in Hawaiian about her family's story. Ko'olau became a folk hero and an important figure in Hawaiian culture, and there's now a play about him as well called The Legend of Ko'olau, which premiered in 2014, uh, and it will be performed in Sacramento, California in April of this year. We're recording in 2016. Ko'olau's rebellion was really the uh, thing that drove me to research this. And in my head, because it has the folk hero elements and the resistance of being unjustly exiled, I was not expecting it to be as sad a story as it actually is. Uh, There's also a Jack London story about this whole thing, but it is really not accurate. Don't read it for accuracy. For anything but enjoyment. (laughs) Even that, like... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can read it, but know that, like, not only is its portrayal of what actually happened not accurate, its portrayal of people with Hansen's disease is not accurate either. So even though I got into this episode with the intent of talking about Ko'olau's rebellion, we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about one of the other most famous figures associated with Hansen's disease in Hawaii, which we will do after one more sponsor break. There is another famous figure associated with Hansen's disease in Hawaii for completely different reasons, and that is Father Damien. Father Damien was born Joseph de Wuster in Belgium in 1840, and he became a priest in the Congregation of the Sacred Hearts. 
Joseph's brother was assigned to missionary work in Hawaii, but when it came time for him to depart, he was too sick to go, so Joseph went in his place. On March 19, 1864, Joseph arrived in Honolulu. He took the name Damien when he was ordained there at the end of that month, and he spent several years in ministry on the island of Hawaii. In 1873, he heard that priests were needed to help leprosy patients on the Kalaupapa Peninsula. Father Damien uh, volunteered to go, and he was the first priest to arrive at the peninsula in response to this particular call. Three other priests followed shortly thereafter. There had been other religious workers and caregivers on the peninsula prior to this point, but as we noted earlier, 1873 was really the first year that there was any real medical care available there at all. Once he got to the Kalaupapa Peninsula, Father Damien became one of the many religious caregivers who tried to give the Hansen's disease patients exiled there a better quality of life. He tried to attend to both the spiritual and the physical needs of the patients. In addition to taking care of sick people, bandaging their sores and providing comfort and counsel, he helped to build houses and a water system and to organize schools and social events. He also added a wing to his church. About three years into his time at the Leprosarium, Father Damien was made the interim superintendent of the colonies, basically the administrator in charge. That followed the death of the previous man to hold the post. He wound up being removed in favor of a patient named William Sumners, who was half Hawaiian. There was also some controversy over a minister that Father Damien had 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 arrested during this time. The minister alleged that Father Damien's treatment of him had been arbitrary and that his demeanor in his post of superintendent was overbearing. Several years after he arrived on the peninsula, Father Damien contracted Hansen's disease as well. This was due to the years of hands-on care he had provided patients. And he died on April 15th of 1889 at the age of 49. He saw his contracting the same disease as the people he had spent more than a decade trying to help as the will of God. There have also been some more practical explanations put forth, which was that he apparently was kind of cavalier about maintaining his own hygiene during a lot of this hands-on care. In 1936, Father Damien's remains were exhumed and returned to Belgium. His body hadn't been returned there upon his death because travel to and from the peninsula was so rare. The remains of his right hand were returned to his original burial site in Hawaii in 1995, and he was canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church in 2009. Although Father Damien was definitely one of Hawaii's most famous religious caregivers at the Leprosarium, the way his story is retold today often has some problems. Basically, it's made to seem like everyone lived in squalor, too lazy or ignorant to care for themselves, until Father Damien got there and started fixing things himself and advocating for better treatment. This is really not true. Native Hawaiians had been petitioning for the creation of regional leprosy hospitals since the 1860s, and the reasons for why the co- the colony on Kalaupapa hadn't become self-sufficient p- prior to Father Damien's arrival really had nothing to do with ignorance or laziness. A lot of the first patients mistakenly believed that their exile was temporary, so they didn't start planting crops that they thought wouldn't even have matured by the time they got to go home. Others understood that their sentence was lifelong, but thought that this was just so unjust that surely it would be overturned soon, allowing them to leave. Also, the part of the peninsula that was originally set aside for the Leprosarium didn't really include that much farmland. The nearby farmland that did exist was leased to healthy farmers, or in some cases, the king. 
Once farmland was turned over to the residents of the Leprosarium, patients started using the fields as a route to escape because the way through the cliffs was less treacherous from there. This led the government to forbid people from living close to the farmland, which made it harder for people to actually farm. So there are lots of reasons of like wishful thinking and miscommunication and resources that all tied together to why uh, Kalau Papa was not really that self-sustaining before Father Damien got there. So basically, it is clear that Father Damien did very real and compassionate work in Hawaii and that in a lot of ways, his work with Hansen's disease patients was both tireless and selfless. But it is really not accurate to portray it as though he swooped in and saved all of these Hawaiians from themselves. From the time of its establishment, roughly 8,000 people were sentenced to exile on Papa. Many of their names are unknown because of spotty record keeping, and only about a thousand of them were buried in grave sites that were marked with tombstones. The peninsula's 14 different graveyards accommodated burial traditions from numerous religious faiths, including Catholics, Protestants, Mormons, Buddhists, and the Hawaiian religion. And the engravings that do survive on some of the tombstones also reflect the languages of the people who were sentenced to confinement on the peninsula. They include Hawaiian, Japanese, Chinese, and English. Leprosy was finally decriminalized in Hawaii in 1969. The National Park Service designated the peninsula as a national park in 1980. As of May 2015, there were still 16 people who had lived in the colony who were still alive, including six who were still voluntarily living on in the colony itself. And we, we haven't really addressed it before. Like there were there are people in parts of the world who are still living in leprosaria who are not permitted to return to society. But then there are other people who, having lived in a place for their whole life, feel like it's their home and don't really want to leave. So there are lots of different reasons for why people are still uh, living in leprosaria when there's not really a medical reason to keep them keep them quarantined. There's also a really passionate debate going on on exactly what to do with the former leprosarium site once the six people who were still living there have passed away. Uh, there are basically people, it's a national park currently, and there are people who want to make it easier and more accessible for people to be able to visit the park. But there are other people who feel like an increasing number of tourists would ruin the rather remote and tranquil atmosphere that exists there now. So that is some Hawaiian history and some medical history all rolled together. Yay. <laughs> Yay, although a lot that's, of it is sad. Well, that's how I feel about it. As I mentioned before one of the before one of the breaks, I really as I was deciding what to talk about today, I have a I have a fondness for folk heroes and often folk heroes stories, while sometimes have have a tragic end, are often uplifting in their tenor. <laughs> yeah. Like they often come off as an inspirational story. And like Ko'olau is definitely a heroic figure in Hawaiian, uh, Hawaiian history and Hawaiian culture. But then all the things that you have to explain to make sense for why that is are really upsetting. So, yeah. uh, uh, do you have, uh, equally upsetting listener mail? <laughs> uh, it actually is kind of, Upsetting. It's not that upsetting. It actually is something that I had, had thought about touching on in a previous episode and didn't, which I'll explain in just a second. This is from Micah. Micah says, Tracy and Holly, I was so thrilled when I saw an episode about my hometown of Portland. Excited to listen to your telling on the Vanport flood. I immediately played it and was seriously impressed with how well you tied Vanport's creation into Oregon's racial history. 
Though I must admit, once we arrived in 1945, I started to yell at my phone, you didn't spend any time on the other residents of Vanport. Yes, it was primarily and historically black city, but it was also home to many Japanese Americans after World War II. When the war ended and the exclusion zone was lifted from the West Coast, some of the Japanese-American population returned to the West Coast from their wartime concentration camps and temporary homes out east. The Nisei that returned to Portland in 1945 didn't have many housing options, and without businesses or farms to return to, they had difficulty finding housing, getting loans, and starting over. A lot ended up living in Vanport. I do know from stories told in the Portland Nisei community that on the day of the flood, most of the community was at a memorial service for the Japanese-American soldiers who died in World War II, which is why only two of the dead were Japanese. One resource on this is a video interview with Francis Sumida Polk on dinshow.org's digital archive. Francis's family moved to Vanport in 1945 and lived there during the flood. Densho is an amazing free online resource for Japanese-American history. You really should check it out. It'd be amazing to have an episode on the Japanese internment during World War II. Uh, and thanks for, <laughs> thanks for this awesome episode on Portland history. And hopefully this didn't come out, come off as one of those annoying, ugh, you didn't say this thing emails and more of a, hey, here's some more info on this thing email. Micah. P.S. Fun history fact. Kaiser, the shipbuilder, also started an insurance company for his workers and became a private insurer in 1945. His company, Kaiser Permanente, is still a major HMO in Oregon. I will add also elsewhere. Thank yeah, you, not just Oregon. <laughs> Lots of places. Uh, so I am actually really glad to get this email from Micah because as I was working on that episode, I had a sentence that was set was like, also, many Japanese Americans lived there after World War II. And that was based on like the one sentence in any of my sources that referred to that at all. And I really wasn't able to find confirmation of like who moved there? Were Japanese Americans segregated by practice, if not by rule, the way African Americans were? What was the aftermath of the Japanese American community after the flood? Like, all of these things that we were answering about the African American community in Vanport, I couldn't find that same information about the Japanese community in Vanport, and I was afraid that mentioning it as one offhanded aside was just going to raise more questions than it would answer. So that is why I did not get into it. Um, so I was glad. I was glad that Micah sent more information because that is information I was not able to find when working on that episode. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to uh, learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. You can put the word leprosy or leprosaria into the search bar and you will find an article about how these colonies worked and still work because they still exist in parts of the world. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. You will find show notes and you will find an archive of every episode we've ever done. You'll find various helpful tips about how to contact us and how to search our archive, stuff like that. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 